Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you an episode from The Vault. This is the first part of our series on the Shanghai Jing, also known as the classic of mountains and seas, uh, the, the great old Chinese text that has all these excellent bits of mythic geography and monsters. This episode originally published on February 9th, 2021, so we, we hope you enjoy this rewind. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, we got a couple of episodes this week that I am really excited about. Yeah, that's right. We're, uh, you know, we're celebrating uh, Chinese New Year, uh, the, the coming of the, the Metal Ox. And so, you know, on, on this show, we enjoy celeb- explorations of uh, celebrations and explorations of mythology, legend, and folklore. <laughs> we love a good monster. And around this uh, time of year, we especially like to explore topics related to, to Chinese culture. So in this episode, we're going to open up an ancient Chinese text known as the Shanghai Jing, the classic of mountains and seas, as it's sometimes translated. Um, other times it's translated as guideways through mountains or seas. I've also seen it called the Canon of the Mountains and Seas. Yeah, it, so it, you know, different different translation. Translations are going to be uh, something we are going to touch on a lot in this episode. But basically, the plan is we're going to talk about what this book is with a few examples from it in this episode, and then the next episode will mostly just be strange creatures and monsters. It's going to be so much fun. Okay, so the, the Shanghai Jing could be thought of. In a, in a few different ways. I mean, uh, we can get more into this as we go on, but in, in some ways it is a text that is difficult to categorize, though some people have sort of uh, – some people have characterized it as an ancient travel guide of sorts. It's like, you know, you go by that book in the gas station that tells you about all the cool stuff in Delaware. This mm-hmm. is like that, but it's like all the cool uh, regions and monsters surrounding the ancient civilized regions of China. So you could also look at it as a work of mythic geography, a kind of magical geographical encyclopedia that says, hey, here are the parts of the world and here are all the different kinds of flora and fauna and monsters and gods and magical entities you will find in these parts of the world. But one of the major focuses of this book is something that, you know, you know us, you know what kinds of things draw our attention. Uh, it, it's going to be the Guai Wu, which this author named Richard Strasberg translates as strange creatures. Now, uh, we're going to be referring to a couple of books uh, throughout these episodes. So I guess the first one, just since I'm already mentioning his name, uh, this is a book called A Chinese Bestiary, Strange Creatures from the Guideways Through Mountains and Seas. And this is a translation and notes by Richard Strasberg who is a uh, professor of of Chinese, I think, at at UCLA. So to give some context for what these strange creatures, the Guaiwu, represented to ancient Chinese readers of this text, I wanted to start with an example that that Strasberg also uses right at the top of his introduction. Uh, So this is a story from an ancient Chinese text known as the Guanzi, uh, also, that translates usually to Master Guan, which is a sort of compendium of tales and knowledge for political leaders. It's it's statecraft. It was composed and collected probably between the 5th and the 1st century BCE, but it is attributed to this guy who lived farther back in the 7th century BCE, so traditionally said to, to have been his sort of uh, thoughts and writings. 
and that is the titular Master Guan or, or Guanzhong. Uh, so back in the 7th century BCE, there was a ruler in the eastern Chinese state of Qi known as Qi Huanggong or Du Quan of Qi, uh, who lived 685 to 643. And the story goes like this. One day, the duke was out riding past the safety of the city walls, and he's accompanied by his prime minister or chancellor, uh, Guanzhong, who, again, this is traditionally said to be the author of this text. Now, of course, when you venture out past the city walls, there, there are all these dangers that lie in wait. Uh, you know, the untamed wilderness is out there. It sort of represents chaos in some form, and it could reach out and claim you. So while Duquan and uh, Guanzhong are riding along, they suddenly spot a tiger lying in wait. It's sitting there ready to ambush, and the predator locks on to the duke and his horse. And there's every sign that the tiger is about to attack him, but then at the last minute, the tiger seems to think better of it, and then does not spring from its ambush, and instead it, it refrains, it slinks away. And the duke is perplexed. What made the tiger shy away from him. And Guanzhong has an answer to this. He says it must be because the duke's horse bears a strong resemblance to a strange creature known as the bow. Now, a bow is in some ways like a Western unicorn. If you've ever seen it in illustration, you might have just mistaken it for that Western unicorn tradition. It is a horse that has a horn on its head, but it is more than that. And just to give you a flavor of the raw text itself of the uh, of the Shanghai Jing, I want to quote from Strasbourg's translation of the entry in this text about the bow. So it goes like this. 300 li farther west stands Mount Winding Center. There is much jade on its southern slope and much realgar, white jade and metal on its northern slope. There is a beast dwelling here whose form resembles a horse, but with a white body, black tail, a single horn, and tiger's teeth and claws. It makes a sound like a drum and is called the bow." The bow devours tigers and leopards. It can also protect against weapons. There is a tree growing here that resembles a wild plum, but with round leaves and red fruit that is as large as a papaya. It is called the Huai tree, and eating of it will increase one's strength. And then after this, after telling the story about uh, Duke Juan, Strasbourg says that this story kind of illustrates the importance of understanding of strange creatures for powerful and learned people in ancient China. And so uh, to quote from his introduction here, Strasbourg writes, Duke Huan, who has become legendary as the first of the five great hegemons of the Zhou dynasty, is shown displaying his control over the wild periphery. The tiger not only represents a threat to man still feared in many areas of China at that time, but symbolically, other nobles who occasionally challenged the duke's rule. The duke's preeminence among men is matched by his horse's resemblance to one of the more fearsome strange creatures, and the duke's supremacy appears only momentarily threatened before he is cleverly reassured by his prime minister. The original readers of this anecdote were mostly members of the literate elite with political ambitions as officials or advisors in the courts of the feudal states. They understood Guanzhong's timely reply as an example of his legendary success as an official and read the story as a recommendation that they, too, equip themselves with such useful knowledge of the strange." And so this is so interesting. I, I, I love what is uh, the kind of picture of the culture that's inculcated by, by this anecdote, the idea that 
if you want to be a, a, a learned person, a good advisor who has, uh, who, who can sort of, uh, adapt to any situation, you don't just need to know how politics works. You don't just need to know astronomy. You don't just need to know the ways of divination and, and, and the will of the gods and all that. You also need to understand monsters. You need to understand the strange beasts. You must have the bestiary within your own mind. Yeah, this is this is a really uh, interesting way to think about it, right? You, the, the world is full of these strange creatures, but there's there is there's an advantage in in knowing about them and understanding their properties because they are ultimately part of the world as well. Uh, because in the various ways of looking at it, uh, the, the the creatures that pop up in this book they're they're not um, they're not considered outsiders. They are part of the world, and if you want to know the world, you need to know its denizens. Yeah, sometimes I get the impression when reading about this that the, it means something different to be a strange creature in this ancient Chinese understanding of the world than it would mean to be like a supernatural creature. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yes, but then but then a lot of the strange creatures, some of the strange creatures are definitely supernatural, right? Uh, and they're gods, even or demigods, um, have have some sort of relationship with gods. Others are just strange creatures, like uh, right. Uh, well, like one example that comes up, uh, if I can uh, I'll briefly uh, just read a, a quick passage from this translation by Anne uh, Beryl that uh, I'll be referring to uh, uh, again and again here. Uh, the text says, and this is again from the, the Shanghai Jing, there is a bird here which looks like a duck, but it only has one wing and one eye. It can only fly if it and another bird join together. Its name is the South Wild. Whenever it appears, there will be severe floods over all under the sky. So, um, <laughs> a half duck. <laughs> yeah, so a half duck that comes together with another half duck and becomes a thing that can fly. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like this is a, a divine being. There is a certain amount of magic to it, I guess, in mm -hmm. that... It's something it does can be an omen or, or, you know, can clue you in about what's happening in the, the world at large. But that seems to be part of the, the, the worldview of the time anyway. So, so yeah, it's, it's not like all of these are magical creatures versus uh, you know, traditional creatures. Because there are a lot of non-magical, there are a lot of, as we'll discuss more about this in a bit, but, you know, it's, it's not just filled with, with creatures that do not exist. There are also creatures within this book that are very much real creatures. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, that mixing of the, the mythical realm with the utterly mundane natural realm, uh, that appears in other types of bestiaries from, from other parts of the world, too. Yeah, probably the – I mean, the, the main thing we're talking about when we're talking about bestiaries are, of course, medieval bestiaries of, of Europe. Uh, they were, these were among the most popular illuminated texts in uh, like northern Europe at the time. They were compendiums of beasts, real and imagined. They were generally described in terms of their religious meanings. Um, there's a, a second century uh, CE text called the Physiologus, and this is the earliest known example of this sort of text. And it was based on information compiled from other sources, such as Aristotle's History of Animals, uh, the work of Herodotus, and of course, uh, another key text that we've referenced again and again on this show that I imagine a number of you are already thinking about as a parallel to the, to the Shanghai Jing, and that is, of course, Pliny the Elder's Natural History. 
Right. Uh, the, his natural history, of course, uh, Pliny the Elder was a Roman military officer, politician, and author who lived in the first century CE. And his natural history is a great window into what was thought to be known about the world during that time in ancient Rome. Yeah, it was a 10-volume attempt to compile all ancient knowledge concerning a multitude of subjects that included no shortage of magic and monsters. Now, Strasburg makes some comments in his uh, introduction that I thought were interesting, which is that uh, while the Shanghai Jing has some similarities to these Western ancient and medieval bestiaries, it is very different in that it does not do allegorical moralizing the way especially medieval bestiaries in Christian Europe did. Um, so it, I, I guess to clarify on that, like a lot of times, if you read one of these medieval bestiaries, it would be like, here's a monster, here's the cockatrice, or here's the unicorn, here's the basilisk. And, uh, and then that becomes sort of a metaphor for something about like sin or redemption, you know, uh, it, it has special meaning within like Christian theology for the authors of the Shanghai Jing. I think it seems clear that this would be more akin to something like what Pliny was doing. It was about just the literal preservation and transmission of what was believed to be real knowledge about the world. Yes. Now, not to say that the, some of these various creatures end up taking on additional meaning later on and mm -hmm. are used to push various points. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, this is an idea of the, the, this is the, the world. Let us try and chronicle what is going on in the world, both the Chinese world and the world outside the limits of Chinese culture. So the Shanghai Jing consists of 18 books uh, that attempt to chronicle the world. And it has, it has no known author, though it was long attributed to the mythic ruler Yu the Great. Uh, this is the individual who uh, is said to have quelled the great flood of China during the 21st century BCE. Uh, now, another interesting thing about the Shanghai Jing, brought up uh, by both key sources for this episode, is that it has long resisted easy classification. Now, not to the extent of, say, the Vonich manuscript, which, you know, it, it seems like it's perhaps a nonsense text, right? We, we can't mm. apply any understanding to it. Uh, we just have theories about what it possibly could be. Um, <laughs> so it's not on that level. But it, it is to the extent that different commentators across the centuries have looked to it as different things and for different answers. So the, the Shanghai Jing has been seen as a book of ancient wisdom, a book of omens, a book of geography, a book of cosmology, a book of fiction, a book of mythology, a book of traditional medicine, and, and more. Uh, so this is one of the reasons that the text has survived so long while others have been lost to history. Uh, as a long you know, tradition of writers, first in China and eventually beyond, continued to come back to it time and time again. And thus, a text with origins dating back to as, you know, as far as the 4th century BCE remains a popular text to this day and has been translated into numerous languages numerous times. Uh, you know, and survived purges as well. You know, like, like, oh, you're throwing out cosmology books. Well, this is a book of fiction, etc. And while we don't want to limit the Shanghai Jing to just monsters. We did put monsters in the title of the episodes because we, you know what we like and we know what you like. So we thought it was a good way to, to ground it. Um, you know, we wanted to catch your eye. Uh, but it is filled with a lot of strange creatures and, and not just creatures that are strange to modern Western readers, but creatures that were strange to Chinese readers throughout the book's history as well. Uh, though, uh, as the first commentator of the book, Go Pu wrote, quote, a thing is not strange in itself. It depends on me to make it strange. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and that's that's a quote that Strasberg uses uh, at the, the opening of his book. Uh, so we just had to mention it here because I, I, I love it 
in context here discussing uh, uh, this book, but it's also just a great quote in general. Well, I feel like in many ways that's sort of one of the the underlying morals of themes of of at least what we try to do on this show. Uh, I guess to expand the broader quote from uh, Gopu, he says that you know uh, people call some things strange and they don't know why they call them that. They mm-hmm. call some things familiar yet they know not why either. What is the reason behind this? A thing is not strange in itself. It depends on me to make it strange. It is from me that this strangeness results. It is not that the thing is fundamentally strange. It makes me think about how often we just try to remind you how strange something that you think is normal is if you really think about it. Right. Yeah. And then the reverse is a useful exercise at times as well. The thing that is strange that is therefore intimidating or terrifying to you. Um, If you you, uh, you turn it around, sometimes it's easier to to, uh, comprehend it. Now, one theme that I was finding interesting when reading about this book is its relationship to time and history in the past. Um, uh, one comment that, that Strasberg makes is that by uh, like 6 BCE, the year 6 BCE, the book was already regarded as a compendium of lost knowledge. So it was already the kind of thing that people were looking at and saying, okay, this might not actually be a perfect description of what's going on, uh, of of what the world is like today. It's this encyclopedia of a bygone era. And this reminds me of something that, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting way of viewing the world that I think is common to children, but it was at least true about me when I was a child, which was uh, when I was a kid, I would watch like fantasy you know, movies and TV and, and read books like that, that wizards and dragons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think for a while, I believed that wizards and dragons don't exist today, but they used to exist in the past. Like I, my, dis- the distinction was not like, you know, uh, mundane is real. Magical is not real. Instead, it was like mundane is now magical was past. Huh? Interesting. Well, on one hand, I, I envy you for, for having ever, uh, you know, gotten to believe that dragons were were real, but but I mean, <laughs> or at least I wondered. You know, oh, it yeah. seemed like it seemed like okay, that maybe that's a plausible view of how things were. Yeah, but I mean, it makes it makes sense because that's I mean, fantasy often is, especially modern fantasy, is the the exer- It's like sci-fi in reverse. It's the exercise of engaging with an imagined past that uh, tells us something about the present. But I think it's interesting that sometimes people would navigate this difference by saying, okay, a an encyclopedic work that has lots of uh, monsters and, and strange creatures in it, it's not so much that this is unreal and mythical and magical. Instead, it's a, like a reference to some lost previous time and place. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like the, the time when these creatures roamed. Uh and of course, that sort of view of time—you do see that reflected in a lot of different uh, traditions and cultures. You know, like there was a time when there were giants. There was a time when there were dragons or unnatural beings walk the earth because of some cataclysm. Well, and I think it's interesting that it seems like people were making this distinction even in the ancient world. In the Bronze Age, people would have this idea that, like, oh, there was a wilder, more magical time in the – I don't know what – you know, the, the antediluvian time. Like, before the flood, there were more of these uh, these magical creatures roaming around. Now, I'm, I can't remember offhand if it was Beryl or if it was Strasberg who points this out. But some, at least some of the creatures described in the, in the, in the book, in the Shanghai Jing – 
could be creatures that went extinct. So, you know, not to say that's the case with, say, the, 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 the half a duck that comes together half with the other duck, but various other creatures that maybe don't seem to match up with things that live today. It could be something that was, say, hunted to extinction, that sort of thing. Not, sure. as, not like a stegosaurus, but you know, something uh, more reasonable, uh, you know, could be the case. Right. No, oh, you, oh, I see. You're not saying like it's a theory that dinosaurs survived into the recent past, but just like, you know, normal fauna. Maybe there was like a, a deer with a different kind of horn or something like that. that yeah, that's sort of being, thing. Yeah, being interpreted as a mythical creature today, but it was just another large mammal. Right. Or some of the more mundane animals that are mentioned in there as well. Yeah. Um, so, so let's go ahead and have a, a, a proper note about the sources here. Uh, so we've already touched on a Chinese bestiary, strange creatures from the guideways through mountains and seas, translated and with notes by Richard Strasberg, uh, UCLA. Uh, this is a really, really beautiful book. It, it has more illustrations uh, than some of the other texts you'll find out there. And uh, the illustrations are, are really part of the fun uh, of, these, uh, of, of, of this text. Now, I think uh, we were talking about this before we started recording. The illustrations in the Strasbourg version are wonderful, but I think they are, they do not date back as far as the text does. They're more right. like a few hundred years old. They they came from some more recent edition of this text. There may have been illustrations going as far back as the text does, but we don't have those older illustrations anymore. Right. Yeah. Like, we see this with other um, old books elsewhere, right? Like the illuminated version is old, but the text itself that was transcribed in here and then illuminated is older still. You can also compare it to things like the sword. The, the blade itself is much older. The sword handle, uh, the, the hilt is newer. Hmm. Um, and that's pretty much what the illustrations are here. But there was another book that was a, a full translation of, uh, of the classic that you were reading, right? Yes, I was reading The Classic of Mountains and Seas, translation and notes by Anne Birrell. Uh, an author of numerous books on Chinese mythology. She taught Chinese and Chinese literature at Cambridge University and the City uh, University of New York. Uh, and this is a book from 1999. I've referred to Burrell's work before. Uh, she, uh, she has a book just titled Chinese Mythology uh, that, I, that I have. And, uh, and Strasberg references Birrell's translation of the Shanghai Jing as being a good one and cites her in his book, uh, though he notes a, quote, highly imaginative rendition of the names and places and things, the names <laughs> of places and things. Uh, we'll touch on this later. Uh, mm-hmm. But both of these texts are available at reasonable prices uh, in hard or softback. I don't think either one can be purchased as a, as a digital book at this moment, uh, but these books are out there and they can be obtained. So if you're interested uh, after this episode, I highly recommend checking these out. All right, so let's talk a bit more about the book and where it came from, and just, I guess, starting by talking about the world that it describes. So the first way to look at the book is to look at it as a textual model or a map of the world as envisioned in ancient China. And this largely conforms to the umbrella heaven model, Strasberg tells us, in which, quote, heaven is like a rounded cover or canopy supported at key points by sacred mountains above a flat, square-shaped earth. And then this square earth is encompassed by four seas. So when, you know, the idea of the classic of the mountains and the seas, that's what Mm. we're talking about here. And the seas are like the the limits of the world. And lands beyond those seas are, you know, far-flung distant places. 
Yeah. Uh, in, when you see this represented, sometimes it looks almost comically symmetrical, like it doesn't mm-hmm. look like a real map of the world. Um, but I mean, when you think about it, I think if you had not actually been able to explore all of the borders around you, it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to imagine that a map of the world would be symmetrical because, the, I don't know, there are symmetries caused just by the fact of like the curvature of the earth that like if you look out in a flat area in both directions, it seems to fall off at the same place. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So Strasberg writes that, quote, in the distant past, the concept of seas may have been more metaphorical, referring to any body of water or even a landmass that lay beyond the limits of the home territory. As the local Chinese ethnic cultures expanded and had more direct contact with the oceans to the northeast, uh, east and south, the term seas took on more concrete meaning, while the magical concept of four remained more symbolic than real, especially with regard to the, quote, Western Sea. So the Western Sea might have been more like, you know, the the expanse of land reaching out towards Central Central Asia and Europe and, and India. Yes, exactly. Now, uh, in, in terms of comparing the, the Shanghai Jing to books that, more, that uh, listeners are more familiar with in the Western world, another one we might compare it to is the Bible. Because like the Bible, we have different authors and different works from different periods of time coming together in a single collection. Yes. As a, as a big appreciator of the Bible, this is actually like maybe the one note I would give somebody to better understand the Bible. I, I think the single biggest problem – modern people have with understanding and interpreting the Bible is failing to recognize it as a collection of books written by different authors across hundreds of years working their own distinct perspectives. I I think so much modern confusion about the Bible arises from the tortured logic of trying to interpret it as like a, as if it were a single book by a single author representing one unified message. Yeah, you can really get stylistic whiplash, too, going from one book of the Bible to another. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, you know, a former former show guest, Bart Ehrman, uh, who came on to talk about the origins of the concepts of heaven and hell. um, He he talks about this a good bit, too, that, like, you've got to let each of the books of the Bible be its own work and, like, understand what its individual author was trying to do with it. Yeah. Now, I would say the Shanghai Jing is somewhat different, though, because it's not like, hey, here's one book that uh, has a distinct author and then uh, it's always identified. This is more like a collection of things that don't always identify them as coming from a different author. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and in general, we just have it, the, the authorship is anonymous, is anonymous because we don't yeah. really know who wrote any of these uh, pieces. Right. Yeah. As Ann Barrell points out, it's it comprises, quote, several texts of varying chronology and authorship. And the the most obvious textual divide occurs between books five and six, because books one through five are often known collectively as the five treasures, the classic of mountains. So for starters, just to talk about, you know, the five treasures here, these five books concern in glowing terms the square earth of the Chinese realm, um, the, the, uh, the, the Chinese world, you know, that is, uh, you know, surrounded by the seas. When we venture into books six through 18, we venture into the increasingly barbaric and strange lands beyond the borders of China. So that's one way to look at these books, with the first five chapters representing the known Chinese world and the other books uh, looking beyond its borders to stranger lands. 
And now this is interesting, too. Birrell also classifies these uh, first five books as being more of a proto-scientific document by someone who was seemingly a, a traveler, naturalist, who acquired information about the regions of China firsthand. Most of the details relate to botanical and zoological information, but there's also some geology and medicine, uh, particularly concerning the medicinal use of the various plants and animals that are explored. Uh, and the animals mentioned, again, they range from... Um, you know, something that, that clearly uh, is, is an actual animal and was extant at the time to potentially extinct and just outright mythical and magical beings. Hmm. Just to give an example of this, uh, I'm going to read uh, once more from, from Beryl, and this is from the, 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 the first five books. The river view contains numerous patterned flying fish that look like carp. They have a fish's body, but a bird's wings. They have bright blue markings and a white head with a scarlet mouth. These flying fish often travel to the West Sea and sport in the East Sea. They travel by night. They make a noise like a Wonder Bird chicken. They have a sweet and sour taste. If you eat some, it will cure madness. Whenever it appears, there will be bumper harvests all over under the sky. Now, we see several things here that are repeated in lots of the, the animal or monster entries within the, the Shanghai Jing because you'll often get like – a place where this is found, a physical description, it makes a sound like X if you uh, can be used to cure Y ailment and mm -hmm. uh, is an omen for Z. Right. Yeah. So there's like a standard format uh, to these. Yeah. yeah. The, not all of them follow, but that's a really common recurring kind of structure. Yeah. So, so this is what uh, Beryl has to say about this. Quote, it has to be said that the discussion of botany and zoology in the first five books is not conducted according to taxonomic principles. And it is often based on mythological inspiration or misguided errors of identification, which diminish its scientific accuracy. On the other hand, given the lack of development in classical science in the ancient world generally, the attention to botanic and zoological detail in the classic is quite remarkable and serves as evidence for a foundation, however rudimentary, of the scientific method in ancient China. Absolutely. I mean, one of the first and most important steps in studying the natural world is making a catalog of things. Yeah. You have to like survey what's in the world, write down its characteristics so that other people can read it, identify the same thing, and then talk about it and compare their notes. Right. So e even though it ends up including things that, that clearly never existed, like the half ducks, um, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the, the template is sound, you know, if you're going to attempt to catalog everything like that's these are some good points to consider. Well, I'm shocked at your closed mindedness. You don't think there was ever a half duck? <laughs> I Well, you know, who knows? Who knows? Um, especially when we get into some of the, the translation issues we'll discuss in a bit. Mm -hmm. Um so anyway, there are editorial interventions in these first five books, but then books six through 18 lean increasingly towards the mythic and the fantastic. Also, in dealing with foreign peoples, we see the same sorts of xenophobic myth-making that all ancient cultures engaged in. Foreign peoples are discussed in terms of barbarism and beastliness, though, as Beryl points out, quote, inhabitants who wear a cap and belt are given mild approval. <laughs> Yeah, there are all kinds of things that are – I guess you would say that they're somewhere between uh, ethnographies of neighboring you know, groups of people and discussions of beasts because there will be like entries about people who have, I don't know, faces in their torsos or something. It's yeah. like this is obviously not real people, but they're treated as if they're like a tribe of humans. Right, and of course this – 
corresponds directly with things we see in Pliny, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, there's there is a you know a sense of cultural superiority in discussing um, the Chinese culture and other peoples from other realms beyond the boundaries of the ancient Chinese world, and it's also reflected in the sort of names given to foreign creatures and even foreign places. There's a strong sense of the the inner Chinese world as a sacred environment, and the lands outside as profane or even cursed. Given such names as and these are translated, of course, uh, by Beryl Blacktooth, and I love this one, the land of Ghoul. <laughs> and the name oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say i like the people who have weird ears like there are the yes. people with like long ears and then the people with pendant ears and then the people with uh th- there are other kind of ears i think too yeah loppy ears is one okay um, hound armor um which I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that would mean but um mm-hmm. you know this this it gives you something to go on like those words and this is all an example of what Strasberg is talking about regarding Beryl's use of names. It reminds me a lot of something we talked about uh, recently on the show, uh, the names of demons in Dante's Infernos and, uh, and translations uh, yeah. of Inferno. All the demons of the, the Malabranca group, the evil claws. I mean, Malabranca sounds a lot cooler than evil claws, but th- that is what it translates to. But I'd rather just call him Malabranca. Yeah, like, like who do you want to read about? Scarmiglion or Troublemaker? Malakota or Evil Tail? Um, you know, to the non-Italian speaker, either choice misses something, right? I think one of them is, translates to something like bad pig or something, or it's like yeah. mean, mean pig. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough, right? Because uh, on one hand, like the, the, the more literal translation, like Evil Tail, Evil Pig, Troublemaker, etc., it gives you a little more to go on, like concrete description, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you can you can begin to form an image of that awful demon in your mind. But then the uh, the Italian, uh, you know, often has this in works like this, like the name itself. It has a certain sound. It has a certain energy to it that mm-hmm. is not going to necessarily survive translation. And of course, it's it has it has a foreign air to it. It feels exotic. Oh, this reminds me, a few years ago we did an uh, episode on a concept known as idiophones, which is the, uh, the the suggestion that there are certain types of sounds that to people seem to convey particular meanings despite having no uh despite having you know no no linguistic relationship in a dictionary definition sense the, the fact that like in any language apparently uh like hard k sounds are naturally associated with like sharp corners and abrasiveness and stuff like that yeah and i think some of that really comes through in dante's names for for the the demons of the malabranca troop uh, but also i there's another layer there which is that i think it's hypothesized by some scholars that Dante was literally trying to create the names of these demons to sound kind of similar to names of people from Tuscany that he didn't like oh uh, well that that sounds perfectly reasonable yeah that that's yeah. that's dante <laughs> to a t all right, so yes, all these things concerning uh, the translation of demon names in the Inferno, uh, I feel like they're all they're all present here as well, dealing with this translation. But that's just Italian into English. It's even more complicated when you're translating ancient Mandarin into modern English. So Strasbourg stresses that the the Chinese graphs possess one or more meanings. So names in the classic might be rather comprehensible. They might be ambiguous or convey multiple meanings, or they might be names that, quote, cannot be understood with any certainty, even if the graphs may function semantically in other contexts. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, so for instance, there's a creature that uh, that pops up in book 14 
that is described as a beast that, quote, looks like an ox with a bright blue body, but it has no horns and only one foot. When it comes out of the water and goes back in, there are, there's, there are all, there's always wind and rain, and the glare from it is like that from the sun and the moon. The animal makes a sound like thunder, and its name is... And then it depends on, on what translation you're reading. So, Birrell translates its name as awestruck. Okay. I, I am awestruck by its glare like the sun and the moon and its one foot. Strasberg merely writes, he is called K. Um, the K-U-I, is, uh, to, to use um, uh, our alphabet. Uh, so, there you see the, div- the divide here. Now, uh, again, I kind of feel like I like both because... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the the, um, uh, the the more Mandarin name, like it, it has all of that. It feels um, it, it feels exotic. It, it has uh, this kind of magical energy to it. But then awestruck also gives me something to go on. Um, so I can see the argument made uh, in uh, from, from from either translation. It's also described as a as a thunder beast. And uh, and just to give a little more detail about it, because it has a fun little story with it. The great god Yellow which uh, it may also be uh, translated as the Yellow Thearch, but more commonly known as the Yellow Emperor. I feel like that's how I see this, uh, this character described most of the time, uh, Huang Di. And it, basically what the, the, the Yellow Emperor does is he sees this creature. It's, it's powerful. It has all this energy. So he kills it, and he makes its skin into a drum and uses one of its bones to beat the drum. Uh, and it is, as you might imagine, quite loud. And so this instrument becomes crucial in his battle against Qi Yo, the legendary creator of metalworking and weapons. Mm. Well, that seems very fitting because, again, as we've said, a lot of the entries in the Shanghai Jing don't just tell you what a creature is and where it is, but they often tell you like what what you can do with it. Like it will protect against weapons or it is a medicine that will prevent swelling. Yeah. And if you happen to be a god, uh, there are additional things you can do with it, apparently. Um, Now, like like most mythical creatures, there are a lot of variations with the the Kuei here. Uh, In Yang An and Turner's Chinese Mythology, another book that I I have here, they point out that Confucius used the Kuei in order to teach the concept of one is enough regarding the staffing of key talented officials. Because, again, this is, in essence, a one-legged ox. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. Um, well, I like it, that how e- even if in the original text, these monsters are not usually presented as something that's supposed to have an allegorical meaning. It's just like, hey, here's a monster. Here's what it, where it is, what it does, uh, that, that interpreters will give it a, an allegorical meaning. Right. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind with all of these. As is always the case, once a mythological creature is introduced or reintroduced even, um, Others may may take it and change it and adapt it and use it for other purposes. Right. Now, uh, Birrell notes that regarding translations, in some ways, the Shanghai Jing is less challenging than other archaic texts, but uh, that the, quote, nature of the textual problems of the classic resides in the great number of graphs for which the text is the locus classicus and for which no safe and satisfactory glosses have yet been offered. So if you remember back to our episode on the Chinese typewriter, you might recall these facts about um, Mandarin characters. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the overall Chinese lexicon numbers in the tens of thousands, 47,000 you'll find in one of the key dictionaries. And it's it's been summarized that in order to get the basic gist of a Chinese newspaper today, you would need to know between 1,200 and 1,500 characters. 
to uh, to really sufficiently understand what you're reading, you'd need to know between 2,000 and 3,000. Meanwhile, a well-educated Chinese speaker in today's world likely knows 6,000 to 8,000 characters. So that's like less than 20% of the, of the total vocabulary. Yeah. So, so what Beryl is saying here regarding the Shanghai Jing is that there are some characters or graphs in it that are the best known or the primary example of usage. You know, like you don't find them anywhere else or this is the main place you find them. Uh, so it might be the name of a place or a creature and there's not much in the way of additional context. Mm, okay, so it's just like here. here's the thing and we don't really have any other reference points going back any further for it. Right. Uh, so Beryl sums up her translation choice as being one that avoids transliteration and immediately brings the classic to life. You know, again, getting that idea of like awestruck, that'll give you some idea of what this one-legged ox is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some 3,000 place names she writes, and the text easily becomes overcrowded otherwise. And she goes into a lot more detail about this, essentially laying out her entire philosophy on translating uh, this challenging <laughs> text. But anyway, back to the, the, the format here. Uh, while there, there is a concise formulaic style in the first five books that can seemingly be attributed to a potential still unknown single author, books six through 18 are a different matter. Uh, Beryl writes that the text becomes disjointed, repetitive, minimalist even, uh, like, quote, uh, hurried, even careless travel notes. <laughs> And there are different theories as to why. Uh, Some commentators have proposed that that these were collected originally on bamboo slips and they became displaced at some point, uh, resulting in disorder. Others have pointed more to editorial editions and even censorship. And Beryl describes these books as a, a makeshift text made up of different reports from different travelers put together with no attempt at literary form. But that doesn't mean that books 6 through 18 are less interesting or anything. Beryl writes that, that uh, quote, they contain such valuable and unrivaled data on anthropology and ethnology, uh, uh, genealogy, ecology, and mythology that their content more than makes up for the deficiencies of style. Uh, I'll say I, I can't wait to read more passages from this book in part two. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much wild and wonderful stuff in there. Um, so, uh, but but it, it's one of these things. Like I think when I first started looking into this, I thought, oh, here's a here's a book from which we can just draw some interesting creatures to highlight. And then the more I looked at it, I realized that the book itself, like the story of the book and the form of the book, was just so fascinating, and ultimately makes us think about. Like books in general and books in other mm-hmm. that comes from other cultures, uh, you know, ancient books, holy books, you know, how they're built and how we think about them. Right. Well, one thing that it definitely has in common with many other ancient works and that uh, that that I think is always very interesting is that it's the work of many hands. You know, this mm-hmm. is obviously there were different authors at different times adding to this collection. And uh, there are different sensibilities going into the entries within this this travel guide or, or uh, encyclopedia or mythic geography, whatever you want to call it. But it has, through much of history, been ascribed to a single author. It said, yeah, you the great wrote this. It was one guy. And so you're imagining a, a single brain from legend that poured forth this thing that is quite clearly in reality a, a, an amalgam. Yeah. Of course, you know, if you, the great, had written it, if that were true, that would mean the book would be uh, like 4,000 years old. Um, but in reality, the first five books, the five treasures, uh, they probably date from the third century BCE. And most modern scholars date everything in the book 
from the period between the early 3rd century BCE and the earliest century CE. Again, written by a number of authors over the course of centuries, though perhaps books one through five were written by the same individual. Now, we've mentioned him already uh, because he's the source of that great uh, quote about how it is me that makes something strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, the author of this quote was uh, was Go Pu, who lived 276 to 324, who was a scholar and poet and a really important commentator on the, the classic of the mountains and seas uh, through history. A little background on Go Pu. Uh, my main source here is An Introduction to Chinese Poetry, From the Canon of Poetry to the Lyrics of the Song Dynasty by Michael Fuller, published by Brill in 2020. So Gopu lived under the chaotic end of the Western Jin dynasty, which fell apart due to all kinds of simultaneous crises around the year 316. Uh, I think there was some kind of succession dispute for the leadership that turned into violent chaos and uh, all kinds of things went wrong. But then eventually power was reconsolidated under what's known as the Eastern Jin, I think like the year after that. And Gopu served out uh, under the Eastern Jin. Now, According to Fuller, Gopu was the preeminent writer of the early Eastern Jin, and this would, of course, include poetry. He was a poet, uh, and I'm going to read one of his poems in a minute, but he was also an immensely learned scholar, having had the benefit of access to the imperial library since he was young due to the fact that his father was also a member of the Jin court. In addition to writing a commentary on the on the Shanghai Jing, he also wrote commentaries on other works, such as the Lyrics of Chu, and he annotated the earliest surviving Chinese dictionary, the Area. But unfortunately, Gopu met a, a horrible end uh, due to one of his, his particular skills. Uh, to quote here from Fuller, He was also adept at divination, but this talent led to his violent death. When the military commander Wang Dun was planning a rebellion, Go Pu at the time was serving as his adjutant. Wang sought a divination about whether he would succeed, and Go's answer was, surely not. Wang had him killed. Oh. It's a dangerous, a dangerous business. Uh, uh, reading, uh, re- reading omens and and uh, telling the future to military leaders. Yeah, or just in general delivering bad news to bad-tempered yeah. leaders. Some guys just don't want to hear bad news. It's true. Uh, but as for his poetry, uh, I got sidetracked for a bit looking at his poetry, which I thought was interesting. Uh, much of it apparently doesn't survive to the present, but. Of what does survive, 14 of the uh, surviving poems are part of a series he wrote called Poems on Wandering Immortals. And uh, Fuller writes, quote, In these, Gopu develops a persona that scorns the trappings of success and instead yearns for the simple life of reclusion. The language of the poems, in contrast to their themes, shows strong traces of Jin courtly rhetorical embellishment and erudition. Which is funny because in reading about that and in actually reading the poems themselves, I, I felt some resonance with another theme that has come up several times on the show recently, which is uh, pastoral poetry. Oh, yeah. But I, I just want to read a bit here from the first of the poems on Wandering Immortals by Gopu. He writes, The capital is a lair of wandering nights. Mountain forests provide a roost for the recluse. How is a vermilion gate worth glorifying? It is not so good as lodging at Ping Lai, and Ping Lai was one of the uh, the Isles of the Immortals in the Eastern Ocean. But the poem goes on. 
Standing by the springhead, I decant its pure waves. On ridges and knolls, I gather cinnabar sprouts. At mystic ravine, one can dwell in hiding. Why strive to ascend the cloud ladder? And that last line there really struck me because I was like, what is a cloud ladder? I, I looked it up and a cloud ladder was a was a uh, an ancient Chinese siege weapon that was like a, a folding hinged ladder that was used to breach city walls. Now I think it's being used metaphorically here, a metaphor for the you know the sort of like constant struggle of trying to ascend through the ranks of city life and bureaucratic life in the court. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it seems kind of fitting too, right? This idea of the the ladder is the thing you're ascending as part of your your life is the rat race. But yeah. of course, the thing about a, an actual siege ladder is once you get to the top, uh, like that's one of the most dangerous parts, right? Because now right. you're up there with the other soldiers. Um, you know, in a way, it kind of uh, you know it it kind of forecasts his death. You know, uh, right. you know, yeah. working your way up, uh, being a part of the system, being close to power, um, and then. Yeah, you know, you're right up there at the top, and that's when they get you. Right, you're about to get a halberd through the guts. Yeah, but I thought it was really interesting. I didn't plan it to come out this way, but on, on a couple of episodes uh, w- w- recently, we've been talking about some of the ironies of pastoral poetry, which is a tradition going back thousands of years. We were talking about the pastoral poetry of Virgil, um, and some pastoral poetry probably falsely attributed to Virgil and then also in more recent years where what a, what a lot of it seems to have in common is this irony that it was uh, poetry espousing the the purity and the goodness and and how nice and easy it would be to be like a rural shepherd instead of somebody living in a city but it was always written by people who only had lived in cities they'd never been a rural shepherd they <laughs> like they probably didn't understand what kind of work was involved in an agricultural existence yeah. And uh, and so yeah, it, it, and th- this seems like the same thing. I mean, not to not to disparage Gopu, who it seems like he was a really interesting poet, but it seems yet again like this is somebody who his whole life had lived, you know, the courtly life, and he's idealizing the the life of someone living alone in the wilderness, which obviously would come with its own with its own harshness and struggles. But I guess the grass is always greener, or the the cinnabar the cinnabar sprouts are always greener when you're trying to climb the cloud ladder. Uh, this this also reminds me of something that uh, Beryl brings up, uh, pointing out that uh, one of the early ad- early uh, admirers of the classic uh, was a fourth century nature poet uh, by the name of uh, Tao Yuan Ming, uh, who wrote an appreciative poem titled "On Reading the Classic of the Mountains of the Seas." And basically, it's a poem telling you the best way to read this book, and <laughs> it involves like setting out, uh, going out into nature, uh, being in a garden. Uh, that has been freshened by a rain shower, being surrounded by good friends, having some new uh, wine. You know, there's a gentle breeze. And mm-hmm. then uh, he says, quote, if this isn't happiness, then I don't know what is. But there's kind of like a pastoral longing um, tied up with appreciation of the book, which makes sense given that those first five uh, chapters, the five treasures, are a, are in a large part just about the the, the, the beauty of the Chinese landscape and mm-hmm. and and the world of uh, of of China. So uh, I feel like those two things go together, uh, you know, rather snugly. Well, I'd say that's actually a very strong tradition throughout uh, throughout different ages of Chinese poetry. One of the things that I think is one of the most unifying characteristics characteristics of Chinese poetry in particular is its tactile appreciation of the specific uh, surfaces and images of nature. Mm-hmm. 
there are tons of uh, of wonderful Chinese poems just about the you know the the feeling of the water of the stream and the and the uh, and the sun shining off of the leaves of the tree. There's a lot of uh, very very textural pleasure of the natural world. Yeah, the half ducks coming together and flying <laughs> off. So yeah, the, the earliest commentary on the Shanghaijing is is that of uh, Gopu. And in it, he shares a really cool story to illustrate how this older text found new life, a story that was first mentioned in the earliest preface to the Shanghai Jing by Lu Xin, uh, who lived 53 BCE through 23 CE. And in this account, uh, basically, this is what happens. It's, it's 50 CE, and the Han emperor visits a cave in northwest China that has just been opened up. And here they find the remains of a man with his hands bound behind his back, bound with his own long hair, and one of his feet is in fetters. And the emperor is just fascinated by this. He's very curious, um, and he asks uh, his entourage for an explanation. But no one has an answer, except for the librarian, Lu Sihang. Uh, he recognizes it and explains that there is a parallel to this in, in a book that he has in the classic of the mountains and seas. And it's the myth of perils and twain loads ritual execution for the murder of a lesser god beloved by a greater god. Mm. Um, now, this would be Twain Lode here, or Urfu, was a god and ultimately a corpse deity um, who was indeed ritually executed for the murder of Notchfla, or Yayu, a polymorphic deity that eats humans, sometimes described more in, in terms of a cannibal. And then Twain Lode is then resurrected by shamans after his death, thus his status as a corpse deity. So anyway, the, in, in, in this uh, little account, um, Beryl writes, the emperor was absolutely astounded by this. And from that time on, people were in competition to study the classic. And so, you know, this begins a long tradition of studying the text, commenting on it, and eventually translating it into other languages. Uh, various views of the text are favored throughout its history. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it ends up you know, still to this day, you know, people are writing books about it. New translations are coming out about it. And um, uh, it's and also you see new works emerge in recent centuries as well. Uh, during the 18th century, the Chinese writer uh, Li Chen, who lived 1763 through 1830, wrote a satirical novel that inverted the ridicule of the book. Instead of facing outward towards non-Chinese, it faced in at the Chinese people, subverting the mythology uh, to point out uh, perceived faults in the national character, uh, which so is an like interesting a, like approach. a satire of his own culture. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's titled uh, "Flowers in the Mirror." And I checked; you can you can actually get you can get an English translation of this. Oh, that sounds interesting. Now, both authors here go into a lot more detail about about all of this, about its its you know the intricate details and like major translations and major commentators. But hopefully, this brief history will suffice for the podcast and help help provide a base from which to enjoy the text. Uh, yeah, we we were already going pretty long for part one, so we'll, we'll have to call it there, I think, and, and yeah. come back with more in part two. Yeah, part two, though, there's going to be strange creatures that sometimes you can eat for magical powers. A creature with just butts on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that critter for sure. So, uh, so yeah, come back on Thursday, and uh, we will uh, we'll dive deeper into the Shanghai Jing. 
in the meantime, you know, we'd love to hear from everybody out there, especially if you have expertise regarding uh, uh, Mandarin or Chinese culture or certainly this this particular book and its history. Uh, certainly write in. Let us know. Uh, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find the podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, if they let you, uh, just rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.